So good to see everybody today. Um, you know, we, we are living in, in a crazy world, and, uh, and as we are reading in Revelation today, you know, we, we know the world is crazy. We, we feel it. We know we, we are going through tribulations on our own, maybe not the capital T tribulations, but, but the tribulation, but tribulations in our lives nonetheless. But I'm happy that today we're beginning to kind of take that last turn down that home stretch um, where we're where we've been through the tribulations, there are certain you know there, there's still some some scary stuff to come in Revelation yet to be sure, but but we're through the bulk of it, and today we really start we start bringing it home to that that final victory in Jesus Christ, and that's you know and this is the part that we've been that we've been waiting for. You know I know that I've talked about the more revelationy parts of Revelation at times. But really, this is this is the most revelationary, uh, revelationy part of Revelation that we're starting to talk about today as we get into some really great themes, beginning in chapter 19. And um, and I just want to say, you know, thank you for hanging with it this long. I will say, remember, next week we will not be meeting, not online, not uh, in person, not here, not downstairs, you know. I, you know, I will not eat them in a boat. I will not eat them with a gun. I mean, it's you know, we, uh, I will be on spring break next week with uh, with Morgan and Bo, and we're going to be going up to visit uh, to visit a college that he's interested in and get a little skiing in. We're going up to Colorado, so um, so you know, it's kind of like I just want to say, you know, we love the masks so much that we're leaving Texas the same day. Y'all are y'all are getting to take them off. We're going to find a place to put them back on. So. I'm just kidding, uh, but but it is interesting that we're making that transition. But it is, it, it, it's, I'm going to miss you all for a week. But then, can you believe it? We've only got two more sessions after that. Just two more sessions. Um, we'll be talking about when I get back. We'll be talking about the second, uh, the second coming and the judgment. Although we start, we begin talking about the second coming today, and then after that, we're talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And I and I almost said, and then we're done. But it's like, no, then we're just beginning. Really, that's that's when we re- that's when when the part that we don't even know about begins. And that's so that's really exciting. But today we're we're going to do some uh, we're going to do some some I think good sort of transition from you know just the the all the stuff that we looked about last week with the, you know the reaping and the grapes of wrath and the fall of the harlot of Babylon and. And you'll remember that last week uh, I, I titled my lecture, I think it was last week or the week before, I t- titled it the, 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 you know, the Fall of the Harlot and the Rising of the Bride. And we talked more about the Fall of the Harlot last time. Now we're talking about the Rising of the Bride. And, and, and we're going to get into the Marriage Supper of the Lamb in just, a, in just a little bit. But before we get into all of that, um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about one of the most significant eschatological, that is, end times prophecies of the Bible that everybody associates with Revelation but is never actually mentioned in Revelation. Um, And it's one of those things that I've realized you can't talk about Revelation without talking about the rapture. And so we're going to spend a significant amount of time talking about the rapture this morning. Um, And, you know, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray... And for those of you who are still here, 
Uh, I, will, <laughs> I, will, I will talk about the rapture and tell you what we all missed, okay? Um, all right, so, I, so if it happens in the, next, in the twinkling of an eye as we're praying, I just want you to know, we'll, I'll follow up. Um, so let's... Yeah, that's right, that's right. That's right. yeah I'm, I'm sadly I feel like I'm going to be here um, anyway let, let's pray gracious heavenly father thank you so much for being with us today as we as we come together we just thank you that that you have given us this this time this moment to to celebrate your word and Lord just to look forward into the glorious vision of the future that you do have for us we have we have faithfully, Lord, plowed through tribulations. We've pr- plowed through the counterfeit trinity. We've, we were plowing through all of these things. And Lord, we just thank you that, that today we begin to see the brightness of your relief and your glory. And we just ask you now to just be with us as we study, that we may truly absorb the joy that is to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So. As we begin today, we're really moving into that portion of Scripture that talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ. And this is, a, this is a, uh, an important, a, a, a hugely important doctrine in the, in the New Testament, but really throughout all of Scripture. And the New Testament term that the Bible uses to talk about the, the second coming of Christ is the term parousia. This is the term that we use to, to, uh, to denote the second coming of Christ. And, um, you know, and as we look, and it, and it simply means coming, arriving, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the appearing. It's just, it means those sort of things. The, the, words, the word ousia, um, you know, has to do with, like, being in essence. But it's, it's, about, it's about Christ's coming to us, the power coming to us. Um, but it's a word that Jesus uses uh, to describe his own coming. In Matthew 24, 3, in, in his Olivet Discourse, or his Discourse on the Mount of Olives, um, he writes, in, uh, or he says in Matthew 24, 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The word coming is the word parousia in Greek. So he's, that's when he uses the word. But I want you to also notice something in that statement. The, the disciples are even then asking him, this is while he's still on earth, when are you coming back? You know, when, when, is the, when, is, when is God's final consummation going to come? And, and again, he... You know, this is you know this is when he, this proceeds when he says you know that 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 nobody, not even the Son of Man, knows when that time will be. Knows the times of the seasons, but but again, we see embedded in this statement in this question is the, is the whole issue of timing. When's this going to happen? When are you going to give the kingdom back to Israel? When is you know that that when 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 question? And as we talk later today, you'll see that that when question is still one that that bugs us today. Um, so, so again, I wanted to bring that up. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. And then at his coming, again, the word parousia. Those who belong to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. For what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at his coming? Parousia. That's Paul. John again. 
And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in, the sh in shame at his coming. Actually, appears and coming are both the word parousia there. Um, so, so we have, you know, so we have all these biblical ideas. I mean, there's, you know, there's Christ himself in Matthew, and, and also in Luke and uh, Mark, use the word. Um, Paul, uh, John, um, it's mentioned in James, you know, who is the most, you know, the, probably the most practical here and now, uh, sort of, I wouldn't say earthly writer of scripture, but, you know, he's, his focus is really on day-to-day on -day type of behavior, but he even talks about the second coming. The point is to say that the second coming, the return of Christ, is not just a revelation doctrine, which a lot of people think that that's just something that lives in that one neighborhood of the New Testament, but rather it is something that permeates the entire New Testament testimony. The idea that Christ is coming back is as old as the gospel itself. It is part and parcel of the, uh, of the biblical witness. Not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Um, one of the things you may remember me preaching around uh, in Advent was the whole idea that you know, there is a lot uh, in Old Testament prophecy, a lot of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that was just not um, apparently fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, certainly where he was born, you know, the, the spiritual aspects, the, you know, the, the idea that, his, you know, that he would suffer for our sins, all those things. But what about the coming of the kingdom? What about the, you know, the earthly reign of God? What about all these things? You know, when's that going to happen? God promised all of that in the prophets, but we haven't seen that yet, right? And so, so the answer to that historically and theologically has been that what wasn't fulfilled, the promises of God that were not fulfilled in the first coming, will be fulfilled in the second coming. Now, I want to make sure we understand. When Jesus said my, you know, that, that God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand, that is not in some kind of partial, kind of tongue-in-cheek way of saying, well, you know, it's kind of like this, but the real thing's coming. No, the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Christ, the spirit of Christ being in the world but it will be fully and finally consummated in his second coming. In fact, it was not, it's not at the second coming that Christ crushes the head of the serpent. It is in the first coming on the cross when he is defeated there that he is mortally wounded. He just doesn't know that he's dead yet. It's the, the death throes of the snake. If you've ever even chopped a snake's head off, you know that it keeps wiggling for a while. And that's, you know, it is, but it is in that second coming that we see the full and final consummation of what God is doing, not just for individuals, but for the whole of creation. We can talk about our personal advent, our, or the personal advent of Christ into our lives, in terms of our own conversion, in terms of our own regeneration and renewal, in terms of our life with Christ. But one day that will come for the whole world. And that's what happens at the second coming of Christ. But the word parousia just means appearing or manifestation or coming of Jesus and his glory. And it is a, it is a concept that permeates the entire New Testament, although oddly the word parousia doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. And so, that, so different words are used, but, but obviously <laughs> the second coming of Christ is a major theme there. But we have, but we have in, the, uh, in this concept um, some very important aspects. First of all, the Bible teaches us that Jesus' coming will be both personal and visible. 
Now, what do I mean by personal? But what I mean by that is that the coming of Christ will not just be a symbolic coming. It will not just be like a, a spiritual second return. Say, for example, like a revival. You know, people might, might, might be tempted to say that, well, well, Christ has returned when the church is renewed. Like that we've all finally got it. So Christ is here and his kingdom is being fulfilled. And, and you know, now that we've got, the, now we've got the school spirit, it's on. That's not what it means. It's not a philosophical, it's not a symbolic answer. It's not merely a spiritual answer. It's certainly a spiritual thing. But it's not merely that. The idea is that the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Jesus Christ, will return. Not as a ghost, but the resurrected Savior will return in the same way that he left. Resurrected body, returned body. The, he will come. It will be triumphant. It will be actual. You know, you know, I don't, you know, will we be able to touch him? I don't know, but theoretically you could if you were close enough. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not going to get into that. But the idea is that he really is coming back. This will be an actual return. It's not just sort of a vision that, that John has to represent something else. You know, I, I love C.S. Lewis. But one place where I depart from him theologically is at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia and the last battle where he sort of represents the return of Christ, the return of Aslan as more of a symbolic coming or, or a reuniting with us in, uh, with, with, uh, with God in heaven as, and, and that earth is just kind of left to its own devices and that, we, and, that, you know, the, and that the faithful are gathered to him there. But that is not the biblical witness. The biblical witness is not that earth is left to its own devices and abandoned, but rather that at his coming, at God's coming, earth creation is restored. That all of earth is resurrected the way that Christ was himself resurrected. And so, so we have, you know, so it is, it is a very personal thing, meaning it happens in person. The second thing is that it is visible. Um, that you know, as he ascended visibly, he will also descend visibly. And this will not be something that is mistaken for anything else. The, you know, when he came the first time, Jesus came in, you know, in absolute humility. And if you heard my sermon from this past Sunday, I'm sorry, I'm going to uh, rehash a little bit of it. But one of the things we see in, in the Gospels is that Jesus continually refers to himself as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man it does, in the Old Testament at times, refer to the Messiah's coming. I mean, it is a term, an expression used to refer to him. And it's related to the second meaning I'm about to talk about. But, it's, but it does have sort of messianic, exalted implications. But the common use for that term would be, the son of man, would be to say, hey, I'm a, I'm a human being, a regular guy. In the sense of, you know, Bob Fuller is the son of Bob and Betsy Fuller, regular guy. You know, you are, you are the child of your parents, regular person. And it is to say, I am a human. Not to say merely a human or basically a human or blah, blah, blah. But authentically a human, a son of man. Now that is interesting. One of the things that, um, uh, that Lewis does, uh, does agree with, you know, he constantly refers to the human children in the Chronicles of Narnia as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And, you know, so there is that understanding that they are the, you know, that they are the son of men. They are the son of people. 
But we saw in the transfiguration, which I talked about this past Sunday, that before his crucifixion, as part of his plan, God wanted to show Peter and James and John who the Son of Man really is so that they would understand what he was giving up for their salvation. And so, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God pulled back the curtain and revealed Jesus Christ for who he is. Not just the Son of Man, but also the Son of God in all of his heavenly glory, in all of those realities described by Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one for whom all of it was made, and in whom and by whom and for whom it was all made made. I mean, that he is the eternal one, that he is the second person of the Trinity. All glory uh, belongs to him. He is the one to whom God will give the name that is above every other name, that at, the, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he pulls back the curtain so that they can see that before the cross, before his abject shame and pain. But so, so what we see is that he comes and his coming will be visible in a way that not just they, not just Peter and James and John will see that, but everybody will see that. And you know, frequently I have people say something, or I've heard over the years, people say something along the lines of, of gosh, you know, what if Jesus came back now, would we, would we even notice or like, what if he came back? I mean, all those people who didn't see Jesus, didn't recognize him the first time. You know, what, what, if, you know what, what if we miss him? You know, what if we're just too obtuse? What if we're too blind? What if we're too sinful to, to miss him? My response to that is that can't happen consistently with Scripture. Well, people say, well, but, you know, and, you know, he came the first time and it, he was promised to come as Messiah and they had all the expectations for his kingship and all these sorts of thing, things the first time. But you also have to remember the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation, the plan of God's redemption was outlined clearly for Je by Jesus three different times. He said what? That the Son of Man must suffer, that he must be rejected by men. And excuse me, then he must suffer, and then he must die, and then be raised on the, uh, and then be raised on the, fourth, uh, on the third day. Part of the plan of salvation is that he would be rejected. And that, you know, and so part of the reason that he came in humility was because you know, God had planned for him to be rejected. You know, we, I mean, that's all, that was all part of the plan. He even said it. And so I do not think that in, the second, in his second coming, there is no plan of rejection. When he comes again, he will come in his glory, fully visible. Um, he, Jesus even says in uh, Matthew 24, 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All of the tribes of the earth will see him. This is, this is an indication that his second coming will be visible. And again, that's, it's important to hold those two ideas in tension, the Son of Man and the Son of God. You know, we, we understand that Jesus is the Son of God because we need to know how much salvation cost. 
Again, we're not going to appreciate how much salvation is worth till we know what it cost. And what it cost was the perfect sinless son of man. But what we also see in the Gospels is that the Son of God gave his life for man, and the Son of Man gave his life for God. Don't you love the perfect synergy of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Love your neighbor as yourself in the parody of the Son of God and the Son of Man. So, so it's important that Jesus comes back visibly, still the Son of Man, still the incarnate God, but now the Son of God revealed in all of his glory with the, with the name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, we, and so this is all part of it, that his return will be visible. And then the third part uh, of his, well, excuse me, the third point I want to make is that, is that at the coming of Christ, the church will experience a rapture. That is the experience of being taken up in the air to meet Christ as he comes. So finally, after 19 weeks of talking about Revelation, Bob's really finally going to talk about the rapture. Why? Because it, you know, as a concept, it's not really clearly spelled out. And of all places, Revelation. But it is at least talked about in other parts of the New Testament. If you would look at uh, chapter uh, uh, at uh, math, uh, excuse me, First Thessalonians four, thirteen through eighteen. If you've got your Bible with you, First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as other as others who do not have who, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus dies died and rose rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then listen to this, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So kind of the, the slide I found um, is, you know, is the understanding that, you know, that we will, that all of the faithful, will be drawn up to Christ to meet him in the air before or while he's coming down, really before, but before he comes down to earth. So this is kind of the, the rapture precedes, but only immediately, the second coming, the parousia of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got we to gotta kind of hit the pause button right here because this is where two major streams of Christian theology part ways. And it all goes back to that question of when are you coming? Now there are, you know, there are predominantly two big streams, one represented by covenant theology and the other represented by dispensational theology about when the rapture happens. Again, you know, Jesus talks about, about it, Paul talks about it. I mean, the fact that there will be a rapture is, I mean, it, it's consistently biblical. The, the real question is when. When does that happen? And the reason that I put it in lecture 19 
is because in chapter 20, or excuse me, starting in verse 11 of chapter 19, is the return of Christ. And if we know that, it, we, that, that the church meets him as he's, you know, as he's returning, I'm out of time. <laughs> I've got to talk about it now or never, kind of. And so, so it's got to happen now. But the, but the reason there is a debate about this is because the two, these two schools, dispensationalist and covenant theology, see, these, see this in two different ways. There's the dispensationalist, dispensationalist school believes in what's called a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Covenant theology believes in a post-tribulation rapture of the church. Um, for those of you who've taken BSF, for example, you have probably heard about, you were probably taught the, the version of dispensationalism, which has a pre-tribulation rapture. If you've seen the Left Behind movies, you know, or read those books, that represents a dispensationalist pre-tribulation understanding of the rapture. Whereas covenant theology, which is actually the majority report for most of Christian history, preaches or teaches a post-tribulation rapture. And what that means is that, and, and this is the fun part, and this is why more people believe in pre-trib, is because under the pre-trib scheme, yeah, all that stuff, the, the, you know, the, yeah, exactly, the, the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, we get to skip that. <laughs> okay, we get to, we jump off the timeline here and come back at the second coming with Christ. The grumpy, dour Calvinists and Augustinians and all those frumpy people, they believe in a post-tribulation rapture, which means we get the joy of being Christ's witnesses throughout the tribulation. Isn't that cool? <laughs> so, so we really won the booby prize there, didn't we? Um, and let me tell you, because I have so many good friends that I am, I, I, you know, they're, they're pre-trib, and even people in my old church who like big de devotees of of um, David Jeremiah and other people like that, and Tim LaHaye, and, 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 you know, and, and one of the things I want to say, this is not, I mean, except for people who get really uppity about and just like church fights, this is, this is not usually, for most people, a salvation issue, whether you believe in a pre-trib or post-trib uh, rapture. Because, I mean, because the, the fact of the matter is, Pre-trib or post-trib, it's like gravity. No, it, you know, it works whether you believe in it or not. Okay, it's going to happen. It's kind of like predestination. Whether you believe in it or not, it's going to happen. Um, and, but the whole idea is, is that you know, you know, I don't look at, at pre-trib people and say, well, they, they have just got the whole thing wrong. You know, or they're going to hell because of, it's, not, it's not like that. And yet, you know, sometimes people get very uptight about this. Um, I, I do have what I think are very solid reasons, biblical reasons, for sticking with the historical majority report. As a matter of fact, for most of Christian history, there was no such thing as a pre-trib rapture because nobody ever thought to think that there was such a thing as a, uh, excuse me, there was no such thing as a post-trib because nobody had defined a pre-trib rapture. It wasn't until there was a pre-trib rapture that, that, that somebody said, well, wait a minute, hold on, I don't think that's right. It happens after the tribulation. But I wanna, I'm going to make the argument today for this one. Now, in the words of my good friend Tina Melton, who goes along with Reformed theology on every other aspect, she said, she said, well, Bob, that was a wonderful lecture. 
about, um, about post-tribulation rapture, but I still believe David, David Jeremiah, and I'll just explain it to you on the way up. And I, <laughs> thank you, Tina. Um, you know, <laughs> she was also the one who was teaching about this once in a Sunday school class, and it was awesome. She described, she said, she said, what is the rapture? The rapture is like having a teenage child. We were all like, what? She's like, yeah, you walk into their rooms, and there are all these disembodied piles of clothes all over the place, and there's nobody there, and the, peop the people who were once occupying those clothes are just gone. So if you have teenage children, you know what I'm talking about. You just walk around, your, walk around their room, you walk around their house, and they're all, it's like suddenly there's just this disembodied outfit. Where did, the, where did the child go? Obviously, it must have been the rapture, because they would never be so careless just to leave their dirty clothes there. So anyway. Um, so a little bit of parenting fun there. Um, so so the, the whole idea of, the co of covenant theology is that, is that we, you know, at this point, the church, the faithful, the saints, have been through the tribulation. That we are not just, uh, we are not escapees or refugees who get, who get to opt out of it, but rather we are, we are, battle-hardened, seasoned veterans with Christ as witnesses through the tribulation. And now, why, you know, what's the foundation of that? Um, well, first of all, you, know, you, you look at the, I mean, Matthew 24, 29, um, where Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the, uh, of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So you know, when is he going to gather his elect? After the tribulation of those days. So there's one you know, sort of very specific biblical reference for a post-tribulation rapture. But I want to make the appeal that, that really there is a reason for the saints to be here, for the saints to be present during the tribulation. There is the, under, there is the belief that one of the perks of being a Christian one of the benefits of being a Christian is that if you, if you become a Christian, then you get to skip all the bad stuff. And that that's your reward. But that's not the gospel. That's prosperity gospel. That's just another version of it. You know, what is the prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel is that if you, you know, if you believe enough, if you name it and claim it, God will make you rich. God will make you happy. God will make you famous. You just have, need to have the right confidence. You need to have the right, um, the right attitude. You need to have just enough faith and Honestly, if you just get put enough in the plate, then God's going to bless you back. That's the prosperity gospel. This is just another version of that, in my opinion, which is that if you, uh, if, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you get out of the tribulation for free. You get your pre-tribulation rapture card, and you get to get out for free. But what do we not see? Where do we see? I mean, it, it, well, let me put it this way. If that's the case, then that is unique in the, in the biblical witness. Because most of the time, what do we see as the, re, as the reward for faithfulness, especially in the New Testament? Suffering, persecution. Read, you know, read Hebrews chapter 11. Jesus talks, I mean, the author of Hebrews talks about the greatest people, the most faithful people, who for their trouble were 
eaten by lions, sawed in half, burned at the stake, all these other things. What does he say about John the Baptist? The most righteous man who ever lived. And he said that right after, John's, after John was executed. I mean, what, you know, what do we see time and time again? It's that, the, it's that the, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. It's built on the witness of the martyrs. And so the reason that most of Christian theology has believed in a post-tribulation rapture is because we believe that God has kept us here, will keep us here, to be witnesses for all those people that he's sending that wake-up call in the, form of in the form of the tribulations. You know, to take those events and interpret to them by the power of the Holy Spirit what's actually happening. There's another reason for this, for this idea of the post-tribulation rapture, too. Um, and it has to do, interesting, with, with sort of Roman uh, civic and military culture. The idea of the second coming um, really, in, in many ways, under this model, formulates the idea or, or envisions the idea of a Roman army returning to Rome to, to declare and claim its victory. Um, and in Roman custom, at least for most of Roman history, there were certainly exceptions to this, in most of Roman history, the Roman legions would march under you know, a variety of, uh, sorry, that's terrible, would march under a variety of banners and emblems. You know, they always had their, their legion or regimental standards. And then they also had some sort of generic standards that they always carried. And one of them, always had this inscription, S-P-Q-R. That's right, for the Senate and the people of Rome. Roma, right. There we go. For all of you who didn't pass eighth grade Latin, Jay just trumped you. There you go. Good. Now, that's right. And it means for the Senate and people of Rome. And so the idea was that the army's victory was not just the army's victory, it was Rome's victory. It was the, Rome, it was the, the victory of the people of Rome for the cobbler and the senator, for everybody who was part of Rome. That was their victory. And so when the Roman general would arrive, they would stop, they would park the legion outside of the, outside of the city, and the people would come out to the conquering general, to the army, and march into the city with them. Because it was not just the army's victory, it was not just the legion's victory, it was not just the general's victory. Although, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like there was a lot of equity in Rome. I mean, the, the generals still took a lot of credit. But, I mean, but at least, and the idea was, it was not just their victory, it was our victory. And what we actually have pictured, and, and it's, Sproul, it's R.C. Sproul who really makes this connection, what we see in the, uh, in the rapture, is the people of God, the army of God, being gathered together with the army returning. The, to use a modern equivalent, this is the allies, the, the British, the Americans, the free French army, marching back into Paris, and all of a sudden, all of those French resistance fighters start coming out of the woodwork. And the people of Paris gather with them. And they are all marched through the Arc de Triomphe together. 
the idea is, is that the, the, the general is coming. And those of us who have hung on, those of us who have persevered, those of us who have overcome are part of that army. We were the insurgency. We were the ones who stayed. We were the ones who fought. We were the ones who hung on. And we're just as much a part of the victory as the tanks that are rolling in, the planes that are flying overhead, all those people who got to wear uniforms. You know, this, this heavenly host that's coming in is joined by the saints whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And, we, and so what happens is that the saints of the Lord do not join the heavenly host as escapees, as refugees, as, as anything like that. This is not Dunkirk. This is the liberation of Paris. They're not refugees. They join the army of the Lord as battle-hardened, decorated veterans. Most of them wearing the decoration of death or extreme suffering. But they are honored, and their victory is claimed, and they are there. And that, I mean, you know, and, and, you know it's, it's the difference between being a refugee and a hero. And, and, I, and I understand why the, you know, the pre-trib idea is comforting to some folks. But, you know, but the question is, you know, people say that, you know, well, as the saints, though, aren't we supposed to escape the wrath of God? And we will. But the wrath of God come in the next chapter, in the judgment, the tribulations and all those sorts of things. Yes, that was wrath, but that was the wake-up call wrath of God. That was the, you don't straighten up, I'm going to jerk a knot in your wrath of God. The next is the, sorry, it's too late, wrath of God. The judgment. And so we need to be clear about what's happening here. Is that the, is that the church will join, will join Christ as he returns. And that's the rapture. That we will join Christ in the air to become part of his army, not just as hangers-on, but as those who have persevered through the tribulation. But here's the question. Why not just wait here for him and, get, and gather up with him here? Because we've got a date. We've got a date. Let's look at uh, chapter 19, uh, beginning in about verse 8. We have a very, very important date. Excuse me, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of, the, of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said this to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why, do we, why are we raptured? Because who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. 
Israel, the bride of God, the church, the bride of Christ. We see this reference in, uh, in, um, in Isaiah. We see it uh, in the Gospels. We see it other places where the church, the people of God, are referred to as the bride of Christ. We see that displayed in kind of in a negative way with the idea that the adulterous people are the harlot of God, you know, that should have should have been the bride of Christ, should have been faithful, but became adulterous. But the pure bride of Christ is going to be married to the Lamb, going to be married to the Savior. And you know what? Before he returns, we've got to get we've got to make it to the church on time. And so we join him in the air specifically for that moment when Christ and his church are finally brought together again. And what's interesting is that the pattern that follows here follows Galilean wedding customs. You know, first there was a betrothal, you know, a promise. And then, you know, if there was any kind of financial transaction, like a dowry, a bride price or anything like that, that then it would be paid. And then... The, the groom comes to, the bridegroom comes to collect his bride and take her home. And that's what we see. The incarnation, that's the betrothal. When Christ comes, that is the betrothal. Man and, uh, man and God are brought together for the first time in that unique way. And the church is, and the church is, is claimed by him. His kingdom is established here. But then, on Calvary... He pays the bride price. I mean, why, why does he pay the bride price? Because we had no dowry to offer. Yeah. We're, you know, we, what, you know, nothing to my hands I, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. We had no dowry to offer, and so he pays it all. Thus the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And he has come to make that you know, to, to make that claim. Isaiah says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so, you know, you, you, you just see this image of the church and of Christ just being brought together. Not in desperation, but in victory. Because we will see that in the next chapter, when Christ, you know, you know we meet Christ in the air, the marriage feast of the Lamb happens, and, and blessed is everyone who is invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. You know, we always assume that it means, blessed is everyone who's invited to the marriage feast as a Lamb as a guest. As if all of, all of the saints are going to be sitting around like guests at the table. Now, I don't think that's what it means. Because we're the bride, Right? The church is the bride. I mean, what happens if one of us doesn't show? Either the groom or the bride. It was really fun the other night for the first time in months. I started a premarital counseling session with a couple because we were able to do their wedding in May, finally. Um, we were able to get going with that. And, you know, and it, was, it was just funny to kind of say, well, the good thing is now we know that we can all show up. You know, we're, we're actually going to be able to be there in person. And this is what's happening here. We are now being united with Christ for, you know, and not just for the wedding, but now for the consummation of that wedding, which is the eternal victory of God in the world of Christ on earth. So we get to come down and be a part of his coming into and restoring his creation. And so 
you know, so we see, I mean, the rapture, part of, I mean, really, I, this may sound glib and it may sound simple, but I really do believe that the rapture is us making it to the wedding. It's, it's us getting there. It's about getting us into position for, uh, for Christ, to, for, us to be, um, for us to be united with him. Um, and I think this is actually interestingly further reinforced by the last couple of verses. Um, in, verses uh, in verse 10 of 19, while they were going to buy, uh, no, excuse me, that, sorry, that's another verse, <laughs> that's another chapter, uh, had another reference here. Um, uh, verses 9 through uh, 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet, that's at the angel's feet, to worship him. But then he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I mean, that might seem like just an angel being humble. You know, he's like, don't worship me. John makes the mistake, just bedazzled, overwhelmed by the glory of this angel and starts falling down. He's told him such great news. He can't help it. He just falls down, starts to worship. And the angel says, no, 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 no. I'm not the one you worship. And, you know, that standalone, that's really interesting all in itself. But it is a really interesting connection to something else that John knew about. And it's almost like it's a flashback here because something like that happened at one point in Galilee when people were trying to decide whether they would follow Jesus or John the Baptist. And listen to, what that, listen to how this goes. John the Baptist says in John 3, 10. Uh, excuse me, John, excuse me John, 3, uh, uh, John 3, 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must, decrease, he must increase and I must decrease. Here's the angel saying, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm not the one. Here's John the Baptist saying, no, 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 don't follow me. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. I'm just a guy in his wedding party. I'm just excited for him. The one who has the bride, that's the bridegroom. Worship him. Follow him. Don't be distracted by me. Don't follow me. Follow him. Why? Because he's the one with the bride and he is the bridegroom. And this is a cultural shift we need to make because we, you know, we live in a world where the bride is the center of attention at the wedding, right? <clears throat> Not so in the ancient world. If you were living in ancient Galilee, you would go to the grocery store and you would see, on the magazine rack, you would see modern bridegroom. <laughs> Not modern bride. And I would be arguing all the time with the groom's mother about the way things are supposed to be, not the bride's, okay? I mean, <laughs> I won't go into that. Um, <laughs> old enough to get married, old enough to handle your own business. All right, anyhow. Um, so... <laughs> A little bit of pastoral window there. Uh, but what we see is that parallel. Where again, the angel, where John, you know, they know that the bride, that, you know, I'm not the, bride, I'm not the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. 
He is the one for whom this world was, was made. He is the one for whom this bride was prepared. He is the one for whom this bride was bought because he bought her with his own blood. And so this is, you know, this is again pointing to the supremacy and to the joy and the gift of Jesus Christ. And why a bridegroom? Why a bride? Because finally, that which was separated in the garden at the fall is reunited. And what happens, not only according to Jesus, but according to Genesis, for this a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is the church uniting with Christ. And that is the glorious promise of the second coming of Christ. Now we will circle around, we'll, we'll deal with some other details like the judgment and things like that, but this now becomes the controlling image. Yes, you know, we do have a lot to talk about with the judgment and all that, but we have to remember that this is the controlling image of what our relationship with God is. So let me just, uh, let me stop there. I've got a couple minutes of, if um, because I've realized that, you know, that people may have questions about the rapture, about the marriage feast, and, I, and, and I've covered a lot thematically today, even though it was a very short amount of scripture. Um, questions. Does anybody have any questions they want to ask? I communicated it so clearly and succinctly <laughs> that you were left without doubt. I've unraveled every question you ever had about the rapture. Yes. Lella. Ah! Pop my balloon. <laughs> so, so if we're meeting Christ as, as if we're meeting Christ, what you just said, then we're coming back down and watching watching the earth become eaten again. So we come back down? Yes, yes, we do come back down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that heaven is not our permanent home. Well, I mean, he, well, heaven is our permanent home because it comes down too. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, and, and, you know, the, what I always want people to know, and we'll talk about this a lot more in the next couple of weeks, is eschatology, that is to say the doctrines of the last things, are not just about the return of Christ in the end and the second coming and the restoration of the world. It's also, the doctrine of the last things are also about our own individual journey in terms of death and life after death and resurrection and how all these things come together and how they dovetail with God's plan for creation in the universe. And so as we talk and over the next couple of weeks uh, after, after spring break, we'll talk about like not just the restoration of the earth, but also the resurrection of the body. What that means in our Christian theology. For, you know, for, you know it, it, is, it is popular, but wrong, or at least popular and non-biblical, to think that, that you know, once we die, we go to heaven, and that's where we're going to be forever. Now, if you define heaven not as a place, but as in the presence of God, you're right. Then that, that's, that's correct. But that presence of God takes on different shapes. And the ultimate idea is that we will be, you know, we will be resurrected people on a resurrected earth and a res resurrected universe with a holy God. And there is actually, you know, that's why, you know, whenever we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus' body. We're talking about 
our bodies and we're talking about ultimately the whole earth. And you got to keep in mind that when we're talking about that, you know, everybody thinks, oh, but I'd rather be a disembodied spirit wandering the universe. No, you won't. I promise this is going to be better. God would not be, have us in this direction if, if that was not going to be better because that has something to do, I believe, that the resur resurrection of the body has a lot to do with the validity of our identity. That, you know, we are not just a mass of, of spiritual isness. We are, you know, God, God made each one of us and we are all fearfully, wonder, wonderfully made. And, and he has designed us in a particular way to live with him in, in eternity. And unfortunately, we don't know what that's like yet because we have nothing to relate that to, but except for the resurrected Jesus. But as we see, you know, as we move into that discussion of, of his restoration of the whole earth and our returning, that all, that all comes into play. So the, those who are with the Lord right now, but, not, but apart from the body, they will, you know, they will return. They'll, you know, that's why the resurrection piece of this, when it talks about that those who are dead will rise first, it's kind of like, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit irreverent, but I almost like imagine spirits of the body, you know, spirits of the dead, bodies of the dead, smack, you know, kind of somewhere midair. It's like, you know, like it's collision and reuniting, kind of like on cartoons, you know, like where, like where a ghost gets pulled out of a body and there's a body right there and they get pulled smack back together. It's like, oh, wow, that was interesting. Um, so I don't know what that's going to be like. I, you know, I, I will say that when it comes to what is... You know, what is this, the rapture going to be like or the, you know, or the wedding feast of the Lamb or any of that stuff? You know, all, all I know is that it's going to, all I have to go by is art and people's imagination and pictures. I mean, all we have are these descriptions. Um, all I know is it's just going to be better. It's going to be better than anything we know now. So, all right. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So, it's, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a well, polite way to say it. refer to them in different places. Well, and, and uh, sometimes it's dictated by context. I just yeah. to make sure. yeah. so, most of the time, yes, that when they're referring to those who are asleep, they're saying those who are dead. <laughs> Kaput, kick the oxygen <laughs> habit, you know, room temperature, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, but, uh, but that's, you know, um, but we're going to talk about that a lot more because next time we'll also talk about the second resurrection. All right. Thank you. Um, please feel free to ask me other questions at, at, at your leisure. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. And thank you for these, uh, for these beloved folks who want to study and learn and grow together. Lord, give us the confidence that comes through your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a happy spring break. I'll see you in a couple weeks, if not sooner. You mean you have to have it actually? We're